welcome to another Civil Politics Supplemental. This is John Roberts, and I was able to interview Janae Lewis along with Sue Timberlake. Janae Lewis is a candidate for at-large city council in Washington, D.C. Uh, full disclosure, she's also my cousin. And uh, we wanted to talk to her about not just her platform or what she was running on, but also how campaigning has changed for her since the start of the pandemic. Uh, and we thought it was a really interesting conversation. Uh, before we get to it, remember, if you want to hear more civil politics, learn more about the show, you can always go to civilpoliticsradio.com. There you'll find links to a lot of information about the show, including where you can listen to us on podcasts. You can use our trusted news search that we've uh, built with specific links that we think provide uh, accurate information. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Civil Politics FM, and follow us on Facebook as facebook.com slash civilpoliticsradio. Uh, and with that, enjoy the interview. Since we're doing a lot of social distancing on civil politics, uh, the last few weeks have been online and on Skype, and we're doing the best we can. Uh, I was thinking that I could reach out to my cousin, Janae uh, Lewis, and uh, talk to her about her campaign for at-large city councilor in Washington, D.C., especially about how the current condition, <laughs> <laughs> the current climate is uh, is affecting uh, the politics of, of D.C. and about her campaign. But thank you so much for being on Civil Politics. Thank you for having me again. So good to talk to you. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's let's get into it. Like, uh, let's let's get into that first. It it's the plague. What's <laughs> what's happening uh, in your campaign? Like, how is it affecting how you are campaigning uh, for this job? <clears throat> um, you know, we had to pivot a lot. <clears throat> candidates. In the month of March, we had seven in-person events scheduled, um, most of which were fundraisers, and we had to cancel all of them. So that was a big blow um, to our campaign. But the opportunity there is that candidates who have more experience um, and more traditional campaign plans are now kind of on an even playing field with uh, candidates who have less traditional campaign plans, like I do, because none of us can get out and about and um, you know knock on doors or do those those in person heavy lift fundraisers. So we canceled all of our events in March, and instead, uh, I've been leveraging my social media quite a bit. So uh, if you look on my Facebook, which is at Janae at Large, um, you'll see videos that I post twice a week, more or less. Some are live videos, some are recorded videos about our platform and other issues related to the election. But we've been getting some good engagement online. We also have been doing virtual meet and greets, and I was one of the first candidates, actually even before some of our current elected officials, to do virtual meet and greets in D.C. So we're using uh, Zoom, and uh, folks who are going to host the in-person events are now hosting these virtual events, and folks get to meet me. I answer questions. We talk about the issues. We talk about our city and specifically how we're going to respond um, during the crisis. You're using the like this new security measures that Zoom has 
put in, right? Just yes, all of our all of our <laughs> tweets are <laughs> well moderated. That's um, good. And, you know the the sign in information is somewhat public, but they're well moderated. So the uh, we always have a staff a team member from our campaign who um, looks at who's logging in and vets folks and and verifies them and all of that. Good. So, yeah. uh, there have been uh, there's been a rash of Zoom bombing that uh, uh, on events and stuff that that's not good. Um, so Absolutely. I'm, yeah, I'm really glad that, uh, politicians, uh, especially are able to have these like virtual town meetings and that they are able to have, you know, some security <laughs> on there. Um, so has the response to the town meetings been, been, uh, very positive? Uh, how, how have people been responding to those as opposed to the, uh, the the in-person town meetings? We're getting about the same attendance levels, which is great. Um, so we host virtual meet and greets usually on Wednesdays or Saturdays. And uh, we have, we've had between 15 and 30 people attend all of the ones that we've done so far. The engagement is good. People stay on the whole time. You know, it's only an hour and 15 minutes or so. And uh, people ask good questions. They're talking with each other. They're putting things in chat. So, you know, I, I do a lot of Zoom meetings like we all do now. And in terms of engagement in this virtual space, it's it's been very, very positive. And, um, you know, a lot of the questions are related to the COVID-19 crisis, but some of them are more general. Uh, people still want to know how we create equity in education. They still want to know how we create sustainable housing that's truly affordable. You know, they still want to know how we create uh, ec equitable economic development. So... Great. Um, Sue uh, was not able to uh, join us in our last interview because we were in the middle of the of the ocean. <laughs> um, <laughs> we weren't able to, to helicopter her in. But uh, Sue, <laughs> you're here now. And I know you had a couple questions. Um, so uh, uh, take it away. And of course, I've completely lost track because I was so busy listening to her. By the way, Joan, wasn't wasn't it nice that you all escaped before the the coronavirus hit? Because you were on a cruise ship, right? Um, yes. Yeah, I am oh glad that we escaped <laughs> onto land. <sighs> Yeah, uh, <laughs> because like one of the things that uh, my wife w kept saying, we had a great time. Let me just say, but uh, we were like, "This is a huge petri dish. Let's wash our hands every day and every hour." <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, but yeah, we were um, we got out uh, of the we got off the cruise just before like the major news hit. So that was that was good. Yep. <laughs> and you were both there, so you could have had both of you get sick, so. Yeah. Good, good or stuck. You know, I was thinking, oh, my gosh, what if I had been one of those folks who was stuck on a cruise ship while right? I'm trying to campaign for city council? I was, <laughs> that would have been terrifying. Uh, so and we I'm, might I'm have really also glad. been, oh, sorry, yeah, what were you saying? I'm just saying I'm, I'm glad we made it back uh, yeah. before the before things got really bad. So. I mean, really, we could have been stuck in Florida. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> and um, just I was just curious, sort of, you know, a lot of times uh, folks run for politics and for different reasons, and I'd just love to know a little bit more about you and sort of how you came to run right now. You know, just anything sort of in terms of your background. I I looked over your Facebook page and your campaign um, website, and uh, there's a lot of really interesting things that you've done, including um, 
one thing where there was, uh, you helped with a conversation. I guess you said what, it was at the congressional level, but sort of that, how do you bridge politics? Because you know, you both know this, but our listeners don't always know that I'm a Republican. So I'm, I'm curious how you're, you know, how you think about bridging that gap or, you know, that kind of thing. You mean bridging the gap between parties? Yeah, and how how you talk to folks, because obviously D.C. is a very diverse area and has a lot of conflicting, you know, sort of pulls and pushes. Yep. Um, Well, to answer your first question in terms of why I decided to run, you know, I grew up in the D.C. area uh, just outside of the city in Prince George's County, and I went to high school in the city. I went to Georgetown Visitation School. And so I I grew up in D.C. in the 80s and 90s, and then I went away to college and lived in other states for 12 years. Um, And I came back in 2010. So when I came back in 2010, there was a lot of economic growth and development happening in the city. But I quickly saw that many folks who were D.C. natives, many people who um, are African-American, who are Latino, uh, Latina were being left out. And I started paying a little uh, more close attention to our local politics, um, but didn't get directly involved right away. Um, Long, uh, ultimately what motivated me to run right now is wanting to leverage a lot of the relationships that I built at the national level, doing nonprofit work, especially around creating equity and social justice to DC policies. Um, We have a lot of very progressive policies on our books that, seemingly want to care for folks who are on the margins in our city, but we don't always invest the money in the budget to pay for them. And we often uh, create an unnecessary fixed choice between, you know, are we going to fund housing or are we going to fund education? And I know from my career experience and my life experience that sometimes those are the wrong questions and framing the question incorrectly can lead us to to the wrong solution. So I really have a vision for the city where everyone can thrive where uh, people can call DC home and live there um, our entire lives without worrying whether we're gonna be able to afford our housing, whether we're gonna be able to keep our jobs um, or whether our children will be educated well. And other people share that vision, other people who've been involved in my campaign share that vision. And that's ultimately why I'm I'm running. Um, you know, I, uh, I'm running as an independent and I registered as an independent when I first registered to vote when I was 18 or 19 years old. Uh, And I did. Um, And the reason why I changed my registration to Democrat in the early 2000s is because I was living in central Florida and I went to vote in a primary election as an independent. I wanted to vote for a ballot measure. Um, And I was almost disenfranchised because I was given misinformation at the voting precinct and I was told that I could not vote that day. And I had to assert myself and tell folks that I knew there was a ballot initiative that I could vote for that day. Um, and I honestly had to fight for it uh, because the person told me I had to go to the county seat and change my registration, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so I, I voted in that election. But uh, when I moved again to Ohio, uh, I registered as a Democrat because I, I was worried about that happening again, and particularly being African-American um, and growing up with stories of disenfranchisement and eyes on the prize. I was worried. I was worried about that. Um, but what I also did was volunteer to work on election day at uh, at precincts, and I did that um, all the way up until 2016 in every state 
that I've lived in the t- at the time, so Ohio, North Carolina, and in Washington, D.C., and uh, I wanted to make sure that other people were not disenfranchised in the way that I that I almost was. Um, but I've been a registered Democrat for for most of my adult life, and I changed my registration last year to run as an independent here in D.C. Um, I am running as an independent, and I first registered as an independent because I believe that the solutions to our societal problems are more complex than sometimes our two-party system makes them out to be. And I do believe in the strength of, of the parties and having coalitions and having a strategy. But I think that we always need voices who are willing and able and skilled to uh, to move between the margins um, to, to come up with more creative solutions. And my professional background, I have a master's in conflict resolution. I've done that uh, with people of different faith groups, um, with people of different racial groups, and uh, with politics. So I used to run a program called Congressional Conversations on Race, where we designed um, experiential activities and dialogue uh, initiatives for bipartisan members of Congress and executive appointees um, to talk about race and racism and how it has impacted policy over time, and to talk about uh, how there might be bipartisan solutions that take into account the factor of systemic racism um, and shifting how we craft our policy to, to create solutions. So I, I led that project. Uh, it was a project that involved multiple organizations and, and worked with Congress. And that's another skill that that I'll be able to bring to um, to the city council. Well, Congress, Congress is very near. Very near. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't hear you. Congress is near. Nearby. Nearby. In fact, <laughs> Don't they don't they have some they have some role in the running of DC or or they they officially do or they do I I don't actually know how that all works but yeah it sounds pretty complicated um, <laughs> it's not that complicated I don't know that it's quite fair but it's not that complicated um, so uh, although the city of Washington DC in terms of the people who are there is very diverse because we if you think about it we have a local community we have a federal community. And we have an international community when you think about the embassies. So we're a very diverse city in that respect. However, in terms of uh, people who are registered to vote in Washington, D.C. and who live in Washington, D.C., um, the city is pretty evenly split uh, between um, black and white. And uh, Asian Americans and Latinx people make up, and Native American people make up um, a very small minority of the city, and unfortunately, sometimes are left out of consideration in our in our legislation. Um, so Washington D.C. is a district. It, it obviously was designed to be the federal city, um, a somewhat of a neutral ground for our federal government. But we have almost 700,000 people who live in the boundaries of Washington D.C., and all of us are disenfranchised because we do not have a vote in Congress or the Senate. We have representatives uh, in the U.S. Congress and in the U.S. Senate. Um, and our House of Representatives, our representative in the House can propose legislation, Eleanor Holmes Norton, but uh, we do not have equal voting authority. And so uh, there's a huge movement right now in Washington, D.C. to advocate for statehood for D.C. And I do support that because um, not being a state means that every single year our budget has to be approved by Congress. So we can't even uh, plow our streets uh, or pick up our trash. Um, if something were to go awry, unless Congress approves our budget. 
Um, we also are, are, are always at risk of uh, Congress interfering in how we manage our school system, how we manage any of the rest of our infrastructure, um, because, again, uh, Congress has overview of our of our budget. And uh, although we do not receive more money than most states in terms of federal benefits, uh, we are still beholden to the federal government for, for approving how we spend our money. And uh, that, is, that is unfair. So um, that's a little bit about how, how DC works. DC's had home rule more or less since the 70s. Um, we have a mayor, we have a city council, we have uh, school board representatives, and we have um, an attorney general. So that's a quick primer on uh, DC government. Wow. Well, and and so um, when you say you're in favor of statehood, I, I you know I tried to read to have some more background because I'm a Bostonian, <laughs> so mm -hmm. I I don't know that much about DC, but I just um, I was sort of curious about. Um, you know, sort of, it, there's a committee that said Columbia something, and I wasn't sure if that's the name that's being proposed or if that's an official committee or commission, or maybe it was was like on the DC webpage, but is there an initiative for statehood? Is there like a formal organization or is, does that just happen to be one of many, do you think? I'm, I'm sorry to ask you a question, sort of because uh, I read something, I wasn't sure what it meant. Yes, so... <laughs> like, uh, Congresswoman Norton, Eleanor Holmes Norton, introduced a bill uh, to propose DC statehood um, in 2017. And there's a coalition of several organizations who've been working on this for decades. Um, but there's there's a coalition that is um, partially being led by DC Vote. Um, and also the DC statehood Green Party has been involved uh, for decades on this. Um, so these, these organizations in this coalition um, they're building on a legacy of decades and decades and decades of work and research and advocacy. Um, the mayor testified in front of Congress last September about the bill that was introduced. And we had um, over, it was almost 220 co-sponsors. I can't remember the exact number, um, but it was certainly um, a majority, the majority that was needed uh, in terms of if the if the bill had gone for a vote. The bill, however, did not... Um, make it to the Senate uh, yet. And um, and then even if it were to pass the Senate, which is unlikely, it probably would be vetoed by the president. Um, however, when you look at historically how territories have become states, DC is right on track uh, with that trajectory. And so this is a, a long-term process, but that that is a formal proposal and a formal bill um, that is in conversation right now, uh, not only in the city, but also in Congress. Nice. I just can't imagine living in a place where you didn't have representation that had the full rights. And I just I've always been shocked about D.C. and sort of yeah. that. Although it, it probably will ruin our flag because it won't be in even 50 states anymore. You know, there'll be a couple of extra stars. But I, I, I think that's worth it. So. Well, if we bring Puerto Rico and Guam and the U.S. Virgin Islands along with us, then, uh, you know, we can, hey, we can there make you it. Go. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Virgin <laughs> Islands. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that, Sounds like a movement. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's let's change um, U.S. imperialism. That'd be fun. <laughs> that would be a right. great time. Uh, <laughs> again, the, the, the opinions of the hosts of, of civil politics are their own and not the, 
and not of their guests um necessarily uh <laughs> so um one thing that we didn't get actually get to talk about the last time we uh the last time we talked, uh, and by the way, anybody listening, if you want to hear that first conversation, I mean, you can always go to civilpoliticsradio.com uh, and uh, just look for uh, that uh, Civil Politics Extra. Um, I'll have it linked in the show notes for this show. But uh, we didn't actually get to talk about your plans for um, uh, for the for handicap access. Uh, in the city, I know that you, that you you thought a lot about that. So, if you want to go into that, I'd really love to hear it. Absolutely, that is embedded in our platform around equitable development um, and sustainable housing. So, when we look at uh, equitable development, transportation certainly is a key aspect of that, and we talk a lot about uh, how we're allocating resources for our transportation in DC and how it is not creating space for um, for folks who may need public transportation in particular the most. So in Washington, D.C., we've experimented quite a bit with uh, bike lanes, with scooters, and multiple companies competing for, uh, you know, different bike share programs, different different scooter share, share programs. And uh, that is an asset for the city because it allows people to um, exercise more. It allows people who are able to ride bikes and, and use scooters to uh, get to and from work or, or other places more easily and more safely without worrying about traffic. However, we are simultaneously looking at cutting bus lines um, in some of the parts of the city that are most heavily dependent on public transportation. We also um, have increased traffic in Washington, D.C. Um, due to some construction and other things that are going on because we've, we've been building and building and building. And so people who right. uh, live farther out <clears throat> on the edges of the city are having a difficult time getting where they need to go. Yeah. That coupled that coupled with a, a lack of uh, investment in parts of the city, particularly where I live, which is east of the Anacostia River. Um, you know, we are a food desert. We lack a uh, high quality hospital um, and urgent care. Uh, there's a lack of retail at a large scale. So there's been divestment in that part of the city for a long time. That's also where bus lines are being cut. And some of the investments that have been made, you know, for scooters and bikes disenfranchise people who have disabilities, people who are elderly, and people who have families uh, with small children or other folks who need assistance. So transportation, um, including an equity lens that takes into account uh, people who need the most access to transportation uh, is very important to me and is uh, a part of the platform that we want to pay more attention to when we talk about what good economic development, which is equitable, actually actually looks like. Besides that, I think um, D.C. has been very good in terms of uh, new building construction, ensuring that there is disability access there um, and other aspects of our city in terms of our parks and recreation. But transportation is a place where we're really falling short. So uh, with with transportation, um, I was just thinking about transportation in and out. Sorry. Busy street. OK. Um, <laughs> uh, with trans on okay just so i can cut it um so with transportation uh what about transportation in and out of the city uh is there any way that um you as 
as an at-large uh, counselor would be able to uh, to facilitate any work, especially between uh, the states surrounding you with with uh, light rail or, or with um, expansion, uh, so people that live outside of the metro DC area could could get in. <clears throat> yes, the city council does have influence there. Uh, we have a member of the council um, who was recently who recently resigned. Um, I'll say somewhat involuntarily, uh, oh, okay. <laughs> um, but he's running again. So, you know, we'll see how that goes. I, okay. Uh, but yes. um, he, he served on the uh, commission between Maryland, DC and Virginia that oversees our uh, public transportation system, uh, WMATA, Washington Metro Area Transit Authority. And so the council does have influence there. Uh, it's always a negotiation between Maryland and Virginia and Washington DC in terms of how much money is invested. Um, you know, we do want to incentivize uh, the use of public transportation, which already uh, has been expanded quite a bit into Maryland and into Virginia. Um, but I earlier, you know, I was talking about intersectional solutions. And I think it's important when we talk about uh, incentivizing the use of public transportation that we take into account the realities people are facing. For example, um, I was speaking with a woman who lives near me who is about my age and who is African-American. She's a teacher and she drives to work um, even though she only works a few miles away. And someone else in the conversation said, well, why don't you take the bus? And she said, it depends on whether it's winter, whether it gets dark early, what time I'm leaving school because I don't feel safe walking from as a single woman living alone, I don't feel safe walking from uh, the bus, where the bus drops me off to my home. Mm. I also, I've been solicited for prostitution while waiting at the bus stop near my house. Oh my God. Um, and uh, thankfully, you know, I've never experienced violence at the bus stop, but we know particularly for young children, um, there is, uh, there, there have been abductions, there have been solicitations, um, and other things that have happened. And so if we're not holistically looking at, it's not just enough to say, well, reduce your bus fare or why don't you take the bus? You're an able-bodied person. You should, you know, you can walk, you can take the bus. You know, there, there are other considerations and we have to uh, invest holistically in communities to make them safe and transportation friendly if we're going to um, incentivize, incentivize that. And then for folks who are uh, driving in from out of the city, um, you know, we need to make sure that they um, they have other options as well. And, and presently they do. So can I ask you your feelings on uh, police presence like in in D.C., like how how the um, how the general police department uh, is is uh, run right now? If you were thinking about making any uh changes or proposing any changes about that uh just thinking about the the teacher that was solicited apparently which is yeesh but um the well, uh I was it was actually me i was solicited oh oh you jeez. oh yeah i was on my way to work one morning <clears throat> oh i oh my god i'm i misheard offered me offered me uh $200 to spend the day with him i think is what he said so just two hundred dollars, yeah. really? Just two hundred dollars. Yeah. Oh, that's just insulting <laughs> for a whole day. What are you, so a, many levels. Gee, yeah, seriously, so I mean, what's the price? Off air. So, um, so uh, I, the other thing I was thinking was, um, 
I don't know if you guys have uh cameras like around the city uh for for uh for police to to uh to monitor different especially like um more violent areas or 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 things like that <laughs> um do do you have those cameras and and just on a wider uh note um what changes if any would you propose for for policing in in the in in the city um, so uh, last year or the year before, our council passed the the NEAR Act, and I apologize, I can't remember what NEAR stands for, but it was a comprehensive piece of legislation to better emphasize um, mental health supports to reduce crime and um, <clears throat> and also and and somewhat to uh, to prevent the overreach of, of police. And given my background in conflict resolution, I used to do restorative justice work with young people in schools. Um, and alternatives to violence. And I deeply believe in our campaign is advancing more investment in uh, mental health-based uh, resources and diversionary programs to, to reduce crime. Um, I'm also very clear that <clears throat> a lot of the crime that the city is seeing right now, particularly around theft and robbery, is related to economic challenges, which are only getting worse and exacerbated because Definitely. of COVID-19. Yeah. And so addressing uh, equitable economic development will help alleviate some of the crime that we're seeing. So I am actually a proponent of uh, looking for solutions that focus on mental health and improved uh, equitable development, as opposed to more deeply empowering police. Um, the city does have a lot of cameras right now, uh, both traffic cameras and other cameras cameras. Uh, the city has an incentive program for people to put cameras on their homes. Um, I do not have a camera on my on my house. Um, although my house uh, has been broken into, I have a security system, but I don't have a camera. Um, I'm sorry. They, I'm sorry. They, they, they incentivize people putting cameras like, do you mean um, normal security cameras? Do you mean like uh, doorbell cameras or both. Oh. So there's a tax uh, break or a tax refund if you install a camera on your home. Oh my um, but my my concern and opposition with that is both of my neighbors directly next door to me and my neighbors across the street from me all have cameras and my house was broken into and nobody has footage of the person who broke into my house. Yeah. And no one, and they never caught the person who did it, right? And so we have this increased surveillance culture and yet we don't know um, you know, and yet we don't know who, who did it. The person that solicited me at the bus stop, you know, he was driving a car. So I could have I could have gotten a picture of his tag if I wanted to. Um, you know, I, I think that we have enough cameras. I think investing in the root causes of some of the crime that we're seeing is a is a much stronger solution. And, and that is. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that's what I support. I also want to say that. You know, these are these ideas are not uh, solely attributed to me. I agree with them. But um, something that my campaign is pushing right now is uh, an initiative called the People's Demands. So um, in Washington, D.C., there is a network called Mutual Aid, and it's actually a national movement. Um, but it's really been strengthened uh, in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. So mutual aid is a group of individuals and organizations who want to take care of their neighbors. And oftentimes it's organized through social media. You can post, you know, I need diapers for my baby or does anyone have an N95 mask or I so, and I've made a hundred masks who needs one or I have clothes to donate. And so people are able to self-organize and, and support and take care of one another. 
The formal organizations who are involved in this network realized that in response to the virus, they were advocating for policy, but they weren't uh, coordinating as well as they could. So they've developed a comprehensive survey called the People's Demand for Washington, D.C., and they're inviting all residents of D.C. to fill it out um, so that we can get a comprehensive picture of what people's needs are and then work together in order to advance legislation uh, that's not competing with one another, but that's collaborative. So our campaign um, has made a commitment to share that survey with everyone on our outreach list. And we have volunteers who are helping to do that outreach as well. Uh, but I say all that because uh, many, much of what you'll see in my platform comes from the people. It comes from visioning conversations that I had in all eight wards before I launched my campaign. It comes from conversations with long established organizations with deep roots and networks uh, who are, are very much in touch with what individual uh, needs are. And uh, that distinguishes us from other campaigns because uh, while I have many ideas, it would be disservice to say that I have the, the best solution. Um, instead, what our campaign is doing is drawing from the best minds from across the city and really empowering one another uh, to advance a collective solution. And that's what it's going to take in the time of this crisis, because we're not going to be able to uh, play politics as usual. That is a great place to, to stop, because that is, I think that is something that everybody needs to remember, especially during all of this you know, before before we start on the purge and everything, just it it's not going to be politics as usual. It's not going to be uh, a it's not going to be like before. We need to, especially during now, we need to pull together. We need to work together. We need to figure out how to take care of each other. Um, Sue, uh, I I want to give you the last word though. Um, do you have like a quick question before we have to go? Yeah, just just quickly. So I I listened very intently, and um, you know I'm kind of old fashioned because I'm over sixty five. Um, so I heard visioning, and I heard a lot of what you said. I found it very interesting because I used to harass genre about how he really can operationalize things. He takes what people wanted it say for example at valley free radio and he could he could make he could make them happen because he listened very carefully to everyone and then he operationalized it and i just from what you were saying i could really hear that in what you were saying that you start with these you know policies and ideas and then you do some visioning so you find out what people really want but then how do you actually get it done and it sounds like um that's really what you're about is to not necessarily you know, chase policies for policy's sake, but to actually, you know, stop some of the house flipping so that there's affordable housing and those kinds of things. So do you, is that an okay word for you, operationalized? Because I, I thought I heard that in sort of how you approach um, thinking about getting it done. Absolutely. That is that is a good word for me. And part of operationalizing in a leadership role, especially as an elected official, is not uh, trying to do it all yourself. So it is very clear that there are organizing groups and service organizations uh, that are well positioned to move very quickly to support people during the time of COVID-19. Um, however, our local government is not uh, leveraging them to the best of their ability. And instead those organizations have organized themselves and people are going directly to them. 
Uh, there is an accusation right now that our local government uh, promised to uh, create a food access hotline. But when you call the hotline, you get directed to this volunteer network of DC Mutual Aid. And so I don't I don't have a corroboration of that allegation. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think that knowing how to lead is, is partially understanding who's best positioned to act. And that's how we're able to operationalize quickly, uh, as well as the individual service and actions that uh, I and others are doing on our own. So yes, yes, absolutely. Obviously genetic. Um, <laughs> uh, may I have the last word, John? Yes, I, you I can. Please, please. Um, so again, thank you so much for having me on the show. And thank you for having uh, bipartisan conversations on a regular basis. And again, listening deeply and thinking creatively about how to improve our society. Um, my website is JanaeLewisAtLarge.com. Um, and I'm sure John will tag me in all the places that this is posted and linked. Um, but I also, again, want to encourage folks, if you are listening in the D.C. area, to take the survey at thepeoplesdemandsdc.com, because that will inform uh, some pretty powerful legislation that will be advocated for uh, at, our, at our city level. And as a potential elected official, I will take that very seriously uh, in terms of how we adjust, um, adjust what we do. So please do visit my website, JanaeLewisAtLarge.com, and donate to my campaign. Um, I'm a public financing candidate, which we talked about in the first first interview, I think. Yes. Uh, so it's driven by people power <laughs> and donations from DC residents are matched by the city five to one. So thank you. And, and I, I definitely have the people's demands, uh, DC.com linked in uh, this show's description on the website, civilpoliticsradio.com and a description of the near act, which, it, which I actually found is near the near act is Oh, I just had it. Never mind. <laughs> um, so, uh, and that's actually, uh, um, that is at saferstrongerdc.gov. Um, neighborhood yep. engagement yep. achieves results. There you go. Man, that's a mouthful. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for being on Civil Politics. Uh, again, good luck with the, with the campaign. Um, it really sounds like everybody is really trying, especially our elected officials, trying their best but definitely um you you seem to 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 really be adapting to the new normal that we that we have right now so thank you so much for being on thank you sue nice to meet you nice to meet you too i look forward to watching the campaign thank you <laughs>